2: in running
3: absolute genius get this welcome
2: welcome <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science what that essentially means is discovery advances Systems. research
3: technology
4: unbelievable
2: without further ado
4: this is the naked scientists Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist, the show where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and
0: medicine. I'm Chris Smith.
2: And I'm Julia Ravey. This week...
0: When we first put it together, we thought, this is pretty out there. You know, not many people have ever attempted to do something in conservation of this kind of scale.
2: A brand new animal was brought into the UK a week or so ago to try to aid our ecosystems. We'll be talking about reintroducing species into the wild, including the benefits and potential costs, and we'll reveal what that huge new mammal is. It's unbelievable.
4: The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by ukfast.co.uk. this week we're going to take a look at reintroductions no this is not when you awkwardly have to remind someone who you are after you met them once before we're talking wildlife reintroductions in order to help us to better understand what this means we've got with us chris Sandom. he's a lecturer in evolution behavior and the environment at the university of sussex it's good to have you aboard chris now first thing in scientific terms what what actually do we mean or what's the definition strictly of of a reintroduction
1: Hi Chris. Yeah, a reintroduction is the deliberate movement of organisms, so animals, plants, fungi from one place to another to restore them in a place they used to occur in. So quite a simple definition. It can get more complicated around what it means by used to occur and how recently do they need to be there and potentially got some confusion in the future about with climate change and moving territories. Some interesting complications to an otherwise simple idea. And what's the main motivation behind doing this? So there's two really, I think. Traditionally, it's been really focused around protecting a threatened species. So if you've got a species that's few in number, restricted to a small area in a place that faces lots of threats, you might want to move a few of those individuals to another place to get another population established to help the outlook for that species, help the conservation of that species. The other one that's getting increasingly more popular is restoring a species that plays an important role in the ecosystem. System and normally associated with the idea of rewilding. For example, reintroducing the beaver into the UK. The Eurasian beaver is not a species under particular threat at the moment, it's classified as least concern, but it has these really tremendous impacts on the ecosystem through its dam building behaviour. It can create wetlands, which is really important for lots of other species. So you kind of get those two as two main ideas. And
4: when contemplating doing this, What sort of checks and balances are there? Because I can think immediately of some terrible examples when people have introduced something to an environment it shouldn't be in and they've discovered to their cost subsequently, I mean, things like the cane toad going into parts of Australia and now wreaking havoc with the natural flora and fauna. So what sorts of things are considered when considering doing this?
1: Yeah, this this is a really important question, and there's quite a lot, to be honest. The guidelines for reintroductions are 72 pages long. There's an important distinction, I think, to make between an introduction and a reintroduction, so the reintroduction into that place where we know it has occurred before, whereas the example you just gave was the introduction of a species that had no ecological history there and the ecosystem struggled to adapt to it. But that doesn't mean reintroductions are automatically safe. So there's a few things we want to consider here, I think. Firstly, you want to think about the animals that were going to be moved. There's a big ethical issue here. Are we moving animals that are coming from a population that can withstand their loss, are these organisms given a fair chance of being moved? You then want to think about the ecosystem they are being released into. What are going to be the consequences? Are they going to be largely positive and going to build that resilient and diverse, ecologically rich ecosystem? Are they going to fit in there well? And you know, last but by no means least, how are people going to be affected? The social, economic, cultural implications of a species reintroduction. And each of those has a lot to unpack. And I think, Getting your risk assessment right is really fundamental for all of those things. So it's quite a lot to consider.
4: Always comes down to the risk assessment. Chris, stay with us. We'll come back to you for your thoughts on more of this as we go through the programme.
2: Well, let's look skyward for one very visible example of reintroduction successfully in action, which is the tail. Of the red kite. Harry Lewis spoke to Will Dixon, who did his PhD as part of the team originally involved in returning red kites to the British skies in the 1990s, and he told him how to spot one.
5: It's a very characteristic bird. It's one of the largest birds you'll find in the UK. It's got a wingspan of over a metre and it's got a very distinctive forked tail. The red kites fly by catching the wind and so they're they constantly twisting and adjusting their wings and their tail which keeps them airborne with very little effort which makes them very efficient at flying large distances looking for their food.
3: And obviously we're talking about reintroductions and this one's quite special, isn't it?
5: It is. It's one of the first successful reintroductions in the UK and at the time it was considered quite risky. I mean, these were birds that were globally endangered. The project involved bringing birds from an area in the wild where they were they were thriving, but There were still concerns about their conservation and releasing them to an area where they hadn't lived for over 100 years. And the worry was, has the environment changed too much? Are the reasons they went extinct still there? Is it a waste of resources and would we be better off focusing attention on conserving the birds where they already live? The reason it went extinct was persecution. So the bird was was shot. So by the middle of the 19th century, the birds were extinct in England, extinct in Scotland, and were only found in a small population in Wales which in the 1930s was believed to only include possibly a dozen individual red
3: kites in the whole of the UK. Bring us up to speed then, Will. When was the reintroduction programme introduced?
5: So in 1989, a number of sites were identified first of all. And the really important thing was to make sure that the birds would thrive where they were introduced. So a lot of work was done with local landowners and people who lived in the area to make sure the birds would be welcome. And two sites were found, one in Scotland, in the Black Isle, and one in the Chilterns. And the Chilterns was a project I was involved in. And originally birds were introduced from Sweden, and then later on birds were introduced from Spain. And in both Scotland and in England, 93 birds were introduced over a five-year period, from 1989 to 1994.
3: And at what point, as a conservationist, do you start to say, this being the first attempt to reintroduce a species in the UK, when do you say it is a success? You know, Are there points along that five-year period where you start to get worried that you've chosen the wrong location, or that this just isn't going to work?
5: I guess the definition of success is the population is self-sustaining so the population will have enough offspring that you don't need to introduce any more birds and so you are not taking birds away from other parts of the world and that was pretty clear fairly early on in the children's population that the the birds were successfully breeding and also that the the offspring were fledging uh, and were themselves uh, making new nests.
3: There was a hiccup along the way though wasn't there because I know that That Swedish population had different ideas in mind to what the conservationists had.
5: Yes, the the red kites are fascinating species found over a huge area and some of the birds are migratory. So some of the birds in Sweden will naturally migrate to Spain in the winter and then fly back to Sweden for the breeding season. And in the early years of the, the children's population, some of the birds left after being introduced and didn't come back. And it's not entirely clear why. It might be that they were genetically programmed to migrate, as their parents had been. Or it might even be that the red kites are very social birds. They tend to go to areas where there's a large population. And so in the following years, a larger number are introduced together.
3: And today, as we've been saying, it has been a success. It's not just been... A it's a roaring success really it's
5: difficult to estimate the numbers now in the early part of the 21st century we reached the point where it just wasn't physically possible to visit all the nests because the program being so successful so a conservative estimate would be there's a thousand breeding pairs in the chilterns now it's actually such a success that we're now at the point where breeding birds from the chilterns have been introduced to other areas including some taken back to spain which makes the whole story go full circle
3: I've come down from Cambridge to see you and we're sat in your garden in London looking into the skies now apart from a few aeroplanes you're not going to see any red kites here are you and it's, it's the same in Cambridge I would have said so when you mentioned that before red kites used to be present across the whole of the UK are there still areas that they're not making it to or why aren't we seeing them I guess here?
5: We certainly should see them in East Anglia, and there are some breeding pairs in Suffolk, and you do occasionally see the birds in, in Hertfordshire. So there's no reason why they shouldn't be here. Buzzards are very successful in Cambridgeshire. Again, it is that social nature. There's a, there's a fantastic word, which is phylopatry. The birds tend to nest near where they're born, and there is that local effect still, and the hope is they will spread red kites have gone from being globally threatened and extinct in England to a situation where the Chilterns now has more than 10% of the world's population, which is phenomenal. So the fact that the UK can take part in conservation of internationally threatened species is significant. But I think more interestingly is the effect that the species have on the environment. So red kites as a, a carrion feeder will compete with buzzards, with crows, with magpies. And there is talk of crow numbers and magpie numbers being too high. And if the introduction of red kites can help to balance out those numbers, it changes the environment. So red kites are a a model in terms of what's possible with reintroductions. We can learn lessons, particularly about the importance of paving the way locally to make sure that the species will be welcome, but also learning more about how species that were historically part of our natural world can enhance it by coming back in.
2: Will Dixon with Harry Lewis on the Red Kite reintroduction.
4: Uh, Still with us is Chris Sandham. He's lecturer in Evolution, Behaviour and the Environment at the University of Sussex. Chris, we have heard that the Red Kite's being hailed as a huge success story in reintroduction. Is everyone delighted though? You do occasionally hear dissenting voices where people say, look, there are consequences of doing this. There are knock-on effects. These animals may take livestock and so on. Is everyone in agreement it's a success story or are you hearing a bit of negativity?
1: So in general, it really has been a a remarkable success. I mean, this species that's now doing better globally, but in particular in the Chilterns, and potentially a victim of its own success. So the sheer numbers that are now occurring there, you start to hear people talking about there being great, but maybe being too many of them. One of the particular areas of conflict is around feeding them. So a lot of people want to get out, get close and connected to these fantastic birds. So they leave out meat and the animals come down and you can see dozens are circling above an area and dive boiling down and collecting these resources but that puts them in close contact with people and there's fear around what that might mean and what it might mean in terms of stealing food they're primarily a scavenging bird as well but they will occasionally take live prey and there's you know some concern that that might have impacts on things like game birds so it might come into conflict with other people's livelihoods and, and that often is a key area of conflict around reintroduction especially when you get anything larger than predatory we've
4: heard a lot about beavers being reintroduced in various places i think on this program we we talked about that wonderful invention the beaver deceiver because the beavers were flooding the farmland that they had been reintroduced to which wasn't going down too well but they were protecting cities and other things downstream from flood risk so there were winners and losers in, in that respect how is that sort of thing monitored gauged and then mitigated
1: when you're looking at the winners and losers of any reintroduction, you're going to have to go through your risk assessment. And that applies to species, other wildlife. You can't have a situation where you always have winners, essentially because competition for space, competition for resources, and that's true within ecosystems and for people. The issue then comes down to when you're looking at people in the example you used, there's often a lot of focus on the mitigation of flooding downstream. And actually, this year in particular the conversation of mitigating low flows as well so you're reducing the extremes at both ends but that does come through the flooding of farmland or places upstream to mitigate impacts downstream now how do you go about compromising there well you're going to need to find solutions which essentially even out those costs and benefits so i know there's people out there in areas where beavers have been reintroduced dismantling dams that are causing particular and specific key problems particularly if they're flooding buildings and having particularly negative impacts like that. So you can put in some mitigation methods that essentially mean the people are getting the benefits, maybe some conservation societies, ecotourism opportunities, even insurance companies are getting interested in nature-based solutions to these problems. It means you share some of those benefits out and particularly targeting those that are suffering the costs of of that wider benefit to society.
4: Something like a beaver dam is pretty easy to spot and if you get a flood in the wake of that it's obvious what the cause is are there any sorts of ways of auditing other impacts if you've got a predatory species a red kite or something and it is perhaps depriving other animals in the food chain of their dinner and having a knock-on consequence is that being looked into and checked to make sure that the best intention reintroduction is not having unforeseen consequences
1: There are lots of concerns around this. The species I've worked with is wild boar, and they have a really mixed reputation as these fantastic wild species that cause rooting and create opportunities for more species to grow, but they're also a conservation threat. And places like the Forest of Dean, where there has been a thriving wild boar population after they largely escaped, so a kind of an unofficial reintroduction, there is concern that they're having negative impact on species of conservation concern. But monitoring nature is incredibly time-consuming, can be really expensive, and quite difficult to work out what is actually causing the decline. So it's, as far as I'm aware, done on quite a case-by-case basis. So you might have a particular group or interested party concerned about a specific species or group of species and focus their monitoring in response to a threat that they might see as a species reintroduction. So ecosystems are dynamic, they are competitive, but we can't monitor absolutely everything or well, well, that's going to be very difficult and we don't really have the techniques in place yet and that's just on the ecology that probably applies to the economics and socially as well so you know other projects elsewhere looking at the negative impacts of large predators on livestock and there are schemes to compensate but how do you work out whether a sheep has been killed by a wolf or has been scavenged by a wolf or the livestock's not being looked after properly or whether it's just bad luck you know for all of these things it's difficult to do but a challenge that we have to grapple with
4: chris sandham who's uh, with us throughout the program
2: the advantages and disadvantages will have very much been weighed up in a quaint woodland in kent recently which became the home of a brand new animal potentially never before seen in the uk No, we're not on the red carpet at a Hollywood movie premiere. That is what it sounds like. Those clacks of camera shutters are capturing the moment bison were released in the UK for the very first time. Stan Smith from the Wildlife Trust in Kent explained to me how these animals can drastically impact our ecosystems.
0: Bison are amazing animals. They are Europe's largest land mammal. They are one of our kind of last real mega herbivores that we have. And European bison can do things that no other animals can do purely by weight of their size really and because of this big size they can really push through into dense vegetation and the reason we've used bison in, in this area is because what we want in our woodland is to really try to create a really dynamic and rich habitat and what that requires is that The woodland has lots of different structures, that the trees in the woodland are all different sizes or all different ages. And the woodland has space for other plants and species to inhabit. And that's what bison do. They go in and they create space in the woodland. They push over some trees, they crash through smaller areas of brush and they even actually start to eat the bark off of trees. And so those trees, they start to die off. That might sound like a bad thing, but where you get one tree die off, you end up with dead wood, which is fantastic for creepy crawlies, invertebrates. And where that tree dies, lots of new trees can grow up in its place. So it really is kind of creating a rich, dynamic ecosystem just because bison are out there doing their own job, really.
2: And who are the bison that you've introduced?
0: So we've started really small. We wanted to really get this right. It's a first for the UK. We have an older female and two younger females. And we've got a male bull following up in about three weeks time. Their herd structure is a bit like elephant's where the older female is in charge. She's the matriarch and she leads the rest of the herd around. And so we had to make sure that she was really happy and settled first. She knew where she was going. She knew what the space was going to be like so that she could feel settled and then the other bison come in and then just take her lead. It was amazing to watch these bison meet each other for the first time on site. By instinct, they know this is the bison that's in charge. I'm going to follow her around and see where we go from there.
2: A common controversy surrounding reintroduction is about if a species is native or not to a place. What are your thoughts on this? Do we need to prove bison were here before to have them here now? I think it's a
0: really interesting debate and an important one. But for us, it's not the reason that we're bringing these animals in. We don't have any fossil evidence that European bison were here in the UK, although we do know that their closest ancestors, the steppe bison, which are all extinct now, they were in the UK up to 30,000 years ago, end of the last ice age. And so we just don't know whether European bison were here or not. But what we do know is we used to have animals here who created that dynamism in our woodlands. They were able to push through those dense areas and really kind of change things up as kind of ecosystem engineers. And because European bison are the last animal we have left that can do this, it really is kind of a no brainer. They are the alternative to these really carbon intensive human managed systems. And so this is just a way that we can start to move away from using machinery so much.
2: And now we have the first bisons out in the UK. How are the impacts of these animals on the environment being monitored? Is there a way you're trying to compare the area of wood that they're living in to other areas?
0: So this whole project has been set up as a scientific trial. It's a really big woodland, it's about 560 hectares, sort of almost two square miles, and just under half of it will be the bison area. And the bison are going to be in this area with actually with some other animals too. They're also going to be in there with Exmoor ponies And Iron Age pigs, they're kind of a domesticated wild boar hybrid. Having all of these animals together, we think are going to be the absolute best kind of complementary systems. They eat in different ways, they move around in different ways and all working together, they can really create that kind of rich habitat. But in order to compare those animals, we needed to have a control area. And so what we have is another area just under half of the woodland again. That is being used with domestic equivalents. So instead of bison, we have longhorn cows and then we have the same ponies and the same pigs so that we can just test the difference between what a domestic cow can do versus what bison can do. And then we have a third area, which is our control area. In that area, there are no animals at all. It doesn't mean we won't do anything at all. Instead, we just continue with that traditional woodland management, using machinery, using chainsaws. And that way we can compare the type of woodlands and the way that they're managed today in the UK versus what these different animals can bring us. What we've got are collars on the animals that tell us exactly where they are at any time. So we can track where they are. We're monitoring absolutely everything you could imagine. We're taking soil samples all across the site, 142, in fact, across the whole site, because, of course, we're going to have all this fantastic bison dung on site as much as anything else, which really is kind of rocket fuel for the plant life on site. And then, of course, we want to think about how the vegetation is changing, because, as I mentioned, the way that the structures change on site, the way that the woodland will grow in different ways all provides different opportunities for different species.
2: What has the public reaction been to the bison? Have people been worried because we've got these now really large animals in the wild per se in the UK? Or have people been really excited and looking forward to getting involved and maybe even catching a glimpse of these animals?
0: It's been so amazing to see people's reaction to this project. When we first put it together, we thought this is pretty out there. You know, not many people have ever attempted to do something in conservation of this kind of scale. And so we were a bit nervous. We thought that people might be a bit resistant to wanting these big animals. And we couldn't have been more wrong. People have been so excited for, I think, the last two years. Every person I meet says to me, when are the bison coming? When are the bison coming? I can't wait to see the bison. And so it's been fantastically positive. There have been some individual concerns. Most of those things come from maybe not understanding what these animals are like, because people think, oh, that's a really big animal. It's going to be really scary. Maybe it's really dangerous. But actually, they'll all be behind fences. So people will be kept sort of separate from those animals so that animals can remain safe and the public can remain safe. We've, in fact, experienced in, in Holland where you can go and stand in places that have bison without any fence in between you. And they're so amazingly calm. But... This way we can show how we can live alongside these big almost prehistoric creatures and it you know can be fantastic for our environments and hopefully gives people a real kind of connection to nature something that really gives you a sense of awe around what our habitats and species are and can be in this country and i think that's fantastic for everyone it's a sort of chance to to rewild ourselves i suppose as well
2: So we now have bison in the UK, thanks to Stan Smith from Kent Wildlife Trust. And we'll keep you posted on how the bison impact Woods after they've settled in a little bit more.
0: Much has changed for business owners, managers and staff recently. But with over 30 years experience in telecommunications, award-winning independent company Spitfire have the expertise to make sure you stay ahead and can keep on innovating. Whether it's connectivity, MPLS networks, firewalls, or phone systems, Spitfire can help. To find out more, go to spitfire.co.uk. That's spitfire.co.uk. Spitfire, telecoms and IP engineering solutions for business since 1988.
2: Music in the program is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for audio and video productions. This is The Naked Scientist with me, Julia Ravey, and Chris Smith. Now
4: helping us out with the programme this week where we're talking about wildlife reintroductions is Chris Sandham. Chris, we've just heard from Stan Smith about the reintroduction of bison into the UK. They're enormous animals. So in your experience, Stan said they're placid. Would public opinion be a bit different if we introduced something that was a bit more aggressive and predatory?
1: Yeah, you get real mixes of response from people. And partly it depends on where you are, I guess. It depends on how close you might be living to it. Research on the possibility of the wolf reintroduction to Scotland, for example, you saw a lot more positive receptions from people based in urban areas that might enjoy the idea of visiting areas which have the wolf but don't have to live alongside it and deal with some of the consequences.
4: Is this evidence-based, Chris? As in, do we have an evidence base? to fall back on of people doing these kinds of initiatives so that we can say to people, this is what's realistically likely to happen if we do this?
1: There's a lot of evidence out there in many Different forms, so you're never going to have perfect evidence. Every place is a bit different. One of the arguments for reintroducing the wolf to somewhere like Scotland is to have the impact on the deer population, which was what was seen in Yellowstone as well. So they have the elk, which is a closely related species to the red deer. They reintroduced the wolves, that changed the behaviour of the elk. The population came down, and then trees started growing again where they they hadn't been before. But that story is more complicated than sometimes it's presented. And that's what I mean by ecology being a very complicated science.
4: If we actually were to go down that path of doing this kind of thing, how do we know that if we do this, it's going to work in an environment? If you let these wolves go, you have then got presumably if you get it wrong to try and reverse things and that might not be easy to
1: do. Yeah, so one of the key points in the guidelines for reintroduction is to have an exit strategy. So if it's not working, you want to have a way of doing that. As you go up the food chain, that tends to mean smaller numbers of individuals. So there would be the potential for catching them up. Collars and knowing where these animals are, as Stan was describing, with the bison seems possible. But also it's about you know, learning to live with nature and predators occur all over the world if we make a, that choice.
4: Chris, thank you very much indeed. Chris Sandham there.
2: Big predators can drastically impact surrounding ecosystems, but other species in the middle of the food chain can be important indicators of environmental success. And local to us here in Cambridgeshire, the reintroduction of one small animal is teaching us about the quality of our woodland and has been a big benefit for participating members of the community. I spoke to Gwen Hitchcock from the Wildlife Trust for Bedfordshire, Cambridgeshire and Northamptonshire and went to Brampton Wood in Huntington to find out more from volunteers Roger and Sarah Orbell. Ah, so is this a a box waiting to go out?
6: Yeah, these are just some new boxes. We've got our local friendly shed group, like, like men in sheds type groups. Oh, yeah. This is the same sort of equivalent in... Brampton on the RAF camp and they've just set up in this last 12 months mainly for mental health and people that want to do some things as well some projects over the winter months and that they've been making these for us this year.
2: What I was being shown there was a small wooden box one of the many which are scattered throughout Brampton Wood in Huntington, Cambridgeshire. These boxes are designed to house a tiny rodent the Dormouse
7: they are a really fascinating small rodent. They are arboreal, so they live in the trees. They do come down to the ground, but not very often during the summer months. They also are very fussy in what they like to eat. So they need to feed on very high energy food sources. Things like nuts and berries, which is what people always associate them with. Because they rely on these very specific food sources, which aren't available over winter, that means they hibernate. Because of this lifestyle, they tend not to produce many young. They have quite small litter sizes. You tend to only get one, maybe two at most litters a year. Dormice are what we call an indicator species. So where you have dormice present, you know that you've got a really good quality woodland or hedgerow. So where we've been losing them, we know that's because the quality of the habitat has declined significantly.
2: Gwen Hitchcock from the Wildlife Trust. Dormice numbers declined drastically at the beginning of the 20th century.
7: So in Cambridgeshire, they went from being a species that was present and fairly common to being extinct in the wild. So the decline in the woodland management meant that a lot of woodlands got overgrown, the habitat became less suitable for dormice. We also have overmanagement by hedgerows, and hedgerows being ripped out completely during the intensification of our agriculture. And that also meant that there were less suitable habitats and also less connectivity for dormice to move around.
2: In order to reverse this decline, an intervention was needed.
7: Back in the early 1990s, the Species Recovery Programme decided to reintroduce dormice as a way to sort of facilitate getting them back into areas that they couldn't otherwise reach. Cambridgeshire is the site of the first ever dormouse reintroduction in the UK. They got a small number that was a mix of wild-caught and captively bred dormice and released them into the woodland over a couple of years, so in 1993 and in 1994. And following on from the reintroductions, they're all monitored, and that involves going and checking dormouse boxes every month during the summer and recording how they're doing.
2: And that's why I came to Brampton Wood, the site of that first dormouse reintroduction in Cambridgeshire, and met some of the volunteers who do these surveys.
6: I'm Roger Orbell, and I'm the administrator for um, Brampton Wood Dormice Project.
8: I'm Sarah Orbell, I'm Roger's other half. I just help with whatever I'm told <laughs> on this project.
2: <laughs> the boxes Roger was describing just before are crucial to monitoring the reintroduction, and they are designed specifically for dormice.
6: So basically, instead of having the hole on the back
2: mm-hmm.
6: next to the tree, we have the hole at the bottom.
2: Oh, yes. Yeah, so it's different to the bare box where the hole will be on the front.
6: Yeah. This one's underneath. Yes. Yeah. So the the door mouse goes and sits on the platform and then goes up through the hole in the bottom. And we, we sometimes have a, a wire mesh at the top. Mm. or some. Now we've just decided we've just changed this to um, perspex so that we can inspect the box without disturbing anything.
2: The presence of a dormouse or dormouse nest in these boxes indicate the species are living in the area surrounding it. Where these boxes live have shifted over the years to better understand how the reintroduction is going.
6: See that that's the general outline of the wood and they were all up in that section A originally. This is where they were released up here. We're now monitoring the whole wood but just a single row of boxes down each side of each one of the rides. We now know that they're established in that original release site, Mm. but we just wanted to find out how far they travelled and to make sure that they are happy and dispersing in the whole area.
2: With many hundreds of boxes in the woodland, it is important to note... They're not to be disturbed. We are only allowed to disturb them
8: once a month on an official survey day, Mm. and we have licences.
2: And while the boxes act as a good indicator that dormice are living in that area of the wood, they don't tell the whole story.
8: I describe it as where we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg. Hopefully, they should be in these natural underground areas and hiding in the stalls and the roots of the trees. Occasionally, some of them, you're lucky and you find it in a dormouse box, but it's a bit like geocaching, you know. You open the box and sometimes there's nothing in it, you know. I think the best experience ever was opening one and seeing a mother and young. Now, OK, you're not allowed to disturb them, and as soon as you realise that there are young in a box the lid goes back on and you retreat. but Just seeing it. Just seeing it. And if you've got young, you know that they're happy.
2: The dormice Roger and Sarah have seen, seem to be very happy. But has the reintroduction been a success? Gwen Hitchcock?
7: I think definitely, yeah. The long-term success, you're looking for the dormice to be distributed throughout the woodland. So we reintroduce them into one small area and then we hope they move throughout the whole woodland. And also we then want to look at them moving beyond the wood to try and colonise new areas. And at like we've got both of these. We've got the dormice having moved all the way through the woodland and we've also got them moving into the hedgerow through the surrounding farmland.
2: But although the reintroduction of dormice in Cambridgeshire has been deemed a success story, we still need to protect these animals from human-driven changes to our environment.
7: So the big threat with climate change for our dormice is that our winters are getting warmer and wetter. And as an animal that hibernates, they need to put on an awful lot of weight survive through the winter winter time is a time of high mortality anyway so between 40 and 70 percent of dormice don't make it over winter and if your winters are warmer they're going to be waking up more and if they wake up and there's no food there that decreases their chance of survival through the winter so we really need to do everything we can to try and make the habitat as best as it can be to give them the best fighting chance to get through
2: Thanks to Gwen Hitchcock and to Roger and Sarah Orwell for taking me on a tour of the Dormouse's home turf.
4: We're back now with Chris Andam, Chris, based on the stories we've heard today about reintroductions, it sounds like a lot of these projects are very long-term initiatives where you don't see the fruits of your labours until a long time has elapsed. So we've got to be patient looking at what impact they may have. That presumably also means that we can't afford to delay in pursuing these initiatives because that would take even longer to see any benefits
1: absolutely i think nature recovery is incredibly urgent for lots of reasons and we haven't got time to waste not least with climate change but i think what's encouraging you know, certainly in britain we're seeing a lot more species reintroduced we've got white-tailed eagle on the Isle of Wight, white storks in the south of England, Pine Martin being reintroduced to the Forest of Dean. So yeah, I think there's a lot of enthusiasm for it. I was actually with a class of seven-year-olds not too long ago who invited me in to talk about rewilding and I've never been with such a group of enthusiastic and knowledgeable people you know, looking for reintroductions of the future. And they were really asking me when a wolves going to be turning up throughout the UK? So if we think about them inheriting you know, the landscapes of the future and if they're at all representative of the wider population, then, yeah, we need to get on with it because these things do take time and the benefits of them take time to come through.
4: Have we solved the reasons, though, that many of these species no longer have a home here? In the first place, the fact that there is a lot of pressure on the countryside, there's development, there's busy roads, do not those pressures intensify with every passing day and and really we may well try to introduce things back into an environment but they'll just disappear again because it just can't support them anymore.
1: The pressures have changed in different places, in different parts of the world. If you consider you know, Europe has a more stabilizing population, potentially decreasing in certain places, whereas others have more exotic and larger wildlife, still significantly growing populations. So arguably, this is a challenge felt worldwide and many of the species that we're thinking about reintroduction have had enormous ranges in the past and it's whatever steps we can take and the pressures a lot of it comes down to direct conflict with people i think certainly with the larger mammals and, and these ecosystem engineers or keystone species they're fine living with people provided that people accept them and don't persecute them directly roads could be the exception to that so there are certain road densities where certain animals just can't cope with that because of the mortality But we do have places just within the UK, in all the countries of the UK, that have the potential to host a much richer assemblage of big species and smaller ones than they have for a long time. And I think that's really exciting. And I think if we challenge ourselves to really think about the future and what might be possible, it offers a lot of excitement as well as some very understandable difficulties that need to be addressed.
4: And just briefly, Chris, to finish, what animal would you like to
1: see reintroduced next? Oh, next... um, Depends where you are. If we're talking about the UK, I'd love to see the wolf back in. I did a chapter on my PhD and I think the impacts they could have on the ecosystem would be would be really fantastic. But I think the Eurasian lynx may be a species that might have a few less difficulties and be equally exciting.
4: Both sound wonderful. Let's hope it happens. Chris Sandham from the University of Sussex. It's been great having you on the programme. Thank you.
2: And that is all we have time for this week. Come back next time when we will be talking about what can be done to combat the effects of the pandemic on children's physical and mental health. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Julia Ravey. Thanks for listening and until next time, goodbye.